0: okay good morning everyone once again let's make our way back to our seats and we're going to continue with uh this morning's father's day celebration once again happy father's day to all of the all of the dads out here and grandfathers and uh and if you didn't hear me mention earlier uh, i spoke with pastor gary and uh earlier this week he and his family are having a great time back home in uh, arkansas they've been to cracker barrel he's he's had his uh He's had his fried catfish and his hush puppies and his fried okra and his fried green tomatoes and his fried coke and his fried everything fried Twinkies yeah, yeah. they're having a good time and before I get go any further, if you have a bulletin with you there are uh as there's an insert in the bulletin. Today, that will enable you to take notes from the message if you are so inclined, and there's just three short little fill-ins today uh, to take with you. Um, and uh, But first, uh, before we really jump into the meat of this message, you know, the Bible tells us that a merry heart works like a medicine, right? And so I feel like part of my job today is to help create a sense of merriness in your heart, and I'm going to do it this way. My family and I are huge Jimmy Fallon fans. We love watching the Tonight Show, and we love especially watching his hashtag segment. That's right, just like that. So, uh, and, and every week, what he'll do is he'll he'll put a hashtag on his Twitter page, and it'll be a subject, you know, whatever uh, it could be, you know, uh, uh, you know, weird family stories or uh, whatever, and. Every Father's Day he does he has a hashtag called dad quotes. Every Mother's Day he has a hashtag called mom quotes and he does he does it every week and it's especially funny around the holidays. But with the dad quotes what happens is he'll, he'll ask people to share funny, crazy, weird things that they've heard their dads say or their grandfathers say with the hashtag dad quotes and then he'll take his favorite ones and he'll read them on the air. So if you'll humor me for a moment so that I can humor you will you take a moment to watch one of the most recent installments of dad quotes by Jimmy Fallon here we go yeah so he airs those every thursday night and i i will warn you uh i watched a lot of the dad quotes and that was the only one that i could show here cuz sometimes <laughs> sometimes they can get a little dark in the humor but uh i love it i love it we love jimmy he's the first host of the tonight show that's younger than me that's crazy If you have your Bibles with you, here's how about this for a transition? Turn to 1 Samuel 16 in the Old Testament. 1 Samuel chapter 16. Okay? While you're doing that, I'm going to talk a little bit about a young man by the name of David. Um, As I mentioned, there are notes to follow along with in your bulletin. So one scholar said that if he had to name a single renaissance man in human history, somebody with extraordinary capabilities on multiple fronts, he said David very possibly would be at the top of that list. You think about this for a moment. He was, he was a musician so skilled that a king, King Saul, would summon David to play in Paul's presence because his playing would vanish his depression when nothing else would. It was like musical Prozac to Saul. He was such a formidable warrior that he won a legendary battle against a great champion before he was even old enough to shave. He attracted the greatest soldiers of his people in his day to serve under him, and he subjugated his nation's enemies in a way that Israel had never experienced before and would never experience again. He was a very fierce competitor. He would take on a lion, a bear, anything. Then he also, he was a poet. He wrote Psalms that expressed the longing of the human heart for God so deeply that now, in our day, thousands of years later, they remain some of the most influential and moving devotional literature ever written. David wrote the prayer book for the human race in the book of Psalms. Also, he was a statesman. He was a statesman of such wisdom and political skill that Israel achieved... um, its highest level of economic well-being and political stability in its history under his reign. And his reign would forever be remembered as the golden age of Israel, kind of like their Camelot, if you will. And it would exist so powerfully in people's memories that they would refer to the Messiah as the son of David because they hoped that he would reclaim the glory days of David. Also, he was an immensely attractive person. We're told several times that he was attractive physically and in his personality, that men and women were just drawn to him and drawn to his charismatic presence. He was a magnetic figure. You think about this. And one man, he had the poetic soul of a Shakespeare. He had the competitive heart of a Drew Brees. He had the musicianship of John Mayer. He had the statesmanship of Lincoln. And he had the physical attractiveness of ryan gosling maybe i don't know Who, ladies whoever you think is hot uh he was a remarkable guy in many ways he was this is that my daughter giggling over there <laughs> i don't know okay i'm gonna move forward let's just you look at the space that's devoted to him in scriptures abraham had 14 scriptures 14 chapters in the new Testament, or excuse me the old testament devoted to him Elijah had 10 devoted to his story, but David has about 66 chapters in Scripture devoted to him. Um, He's mentioned 600 times or so in the Old Testament, and he's mentioned about another 60 times in the New Testament. But in the text that we're going to look at this morning, God says that what's really remarkable about David, what drew God to him, was not all of these exterior accomplishments or characteristics. It was what? His heart. And that's what we're going to talk about today, David being a man after God's own heart. My real reason, our real reason for studying David today is that I think was what I think God will do to our hearts, to yours and mine today. By the end of this message, you will be certified Davidologists. And you can put that on your LinkedIn profile. That's okay. So first Samuel 16 is where we meet David in Scripture. Little Just a little bit of backstory: Israel had been freed from Egypt. They had been, they'd lived in the promised land under a series of judges like Joshua, Gideon, and Samson. And the last judge that led Israel was named Samuel. But the people wanted a king. And so God had Samuel anoint one. And the first king was Saul. And he was an impressive guy. He stood head and shoulders ab- over the people of Israel but Saul became increasingly corrupt and violent and evil and God said in 1st Samuel 13 that God had appointed a man after his own heart God had given up on Saul and appointed a man after his own heart so now in 1st Samuel 16 Samuel is an old old man and we read his story from when he was a little child that God spoke to in the temple now he now he's an old man and his time is close to being done on the earth and God speaks to him once more in First Samuel 16, and it goes like this. Now, the Lord said to Samuel, you have mourned long enough for Saul. I have rejected him as king of Israel, so fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I have selected one of his sons to be my king. But Samuel asked, asked how can I do that? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. Take a heifer with you, the Lord replied, and say that you have come to make a sacrifice for the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you which of his sons to anoint for me. So Samuel did as the Lord instructed, and when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town, they came trembling to meet him. What's wrong, they asked. Do you come in peace? Yes, Samuel replied. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Purify yourselves and come with me to the to the sacrifice. And then Samuel performed the purification rite for Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice too. When they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, "Surely, this is the Lord's anointed." And uh Samuel and then Samuel said, uh, "Don't call me sure." No, I'm just kidding. But the Lord said to Samuel, no, 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 don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way that you see him. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse told his son Abinadab to step forward and walk in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, this is not the one the Lord has chosen. And next Jesse summoned Shama, But Samuel said, neither is this the one that the Lord has chosen. In the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. And then Samuel asked an interesting question. Are these all the sons you have? Well, there is still the youngest, Jesse replied. But he's out in the fields watching the sheep and goats. Send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down and eat until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome and had beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, this is the one, anoint him. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil he had brought and anointed David with the oil. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. Then Samuel returned to Ramah. So here's what happens. God tells Samuel, Samuel, go and anoint a new king. And Samuel says, but God, we've already got a king, and it's not good for your health to, to appoint a new king when there's still an old one. And God said, look, trust me on this. So Samuel goes to this little obscure village called Bethlehem. And you'll notice in the text, it says in verse 4 that we just read, that the elders of the town trembled when Samuel showed up. Samuel was not known for small talk, and they wondered who had screwed up. This was a bit of a reckoning. They trembled, and Samuel said, it's okay. God is going to give great honor to this town. The leader of his people is going to come from Bethlehem. So Samuel invites the elders and Jesse's family to this event, and you might imagine that his arrival would create quite a bit of a stir in this obscure little village, and Jesse is so proud he can hardly stand it. you got to picture this scene for a moment. Jesse introduces his first son, his heir. He's always known that this kid was destined for greatness. And he has a commanding presence. He walks into a room, and he just dominates. And Jesse says, this is my son, Eliab. Eliab is Hebrew for you to man. So Jesse says, yes, he's the man. And all the elders still nod their head, and they say, yeah, he's the man. And Samuel looks at him and says, yeah, he's the man, all right. And God said, he ain't the man. So Samuel passes that word on, and then Jesse has son number two, Abinadab, and he's not the man. And then son number three, Shammah, he's not the man. And then they go through all seven sons. Not all of them are named, but all of them are rejected. Nobody is the man. And Samuel's probably wondering by this time, God, why did you have me come out here into the middle of nowhere to reject seven sons? And so he says to Jesse, Are these the only sons you have? Which is kind of an odd question, don't you think? Jesse would be aware of how many sons he has, and Jesse says almost as an afterthought, "Well, there's you know, there's still the youngest. We don't we don't get a name yet. There's still the youngest. Just you know, what's his name?" And you need to understand that in Hebrew, the youngest meant not merely the last born; it also meant the lowest in rank. There's a real big significance to this whole birth order thing. And there's some of that in in our day too. Now let me ask you, how many of you were not the firstborn in your families? Show of hands. Okay. Did anything take place growing up that you felt was unfair? Do you feel like your older siblings got uh, maybe a little bit uh, better treatment perhaps? Uh, more uh, you know more things uh, to to their uh, to, to to their side? Unfair advantages, if you will. Well, Jesse says, "There's still the youngest, but he's out with the sheep. And then Samuel says, go send for him. We'll wait. Imagine what that was like. They had to take considerable time to track the kid down, out with his sheep. And Samuel says, we won't sit down until, he, until he's here, until he comes. So they're all just standing there, seven sons waiting for David to show up. And God looks at David, and he says, that's the one. That's my man. That's him. Now, there's a theme going on here, and it kind of runs through the Old Testament. I talked about birth order here. I want to say a word about what it has to do with the reversal of birth order, because, again, in those days, birth order was a big deal. You think about the thread that's followed in the Old Testament of the people of God. Ishmael was, is born first, but God chooses Isaac. Esau comes first, but God has the line go through Jacob. Ten other brothers are born first, but God chooses Joseph. Seven other boys are born first, but David, the youngest, is the one who is who becomes king. Now, is God saying that all firstborns are spoiled brats, <laughs> <laughs> and that He likes middle kids or younger kids better? It's because in those days, everything went to the firstborn: all rights, all property, all privileges. That's the way that the power structures were in those days. But God is saying that he's breaking into the ordinary cultural practices of everyday human life. He's doing something new. He's starting a new thing. Old limitations and old boundaries about who counts and who doesn't count and who's more important than the other, in God's eyes, they just don't apply anymore. They just simply don't. Not in God's kingdom. God is doing something new, and he's not bound or beholden to any human system or powers. He is at work now, and his kingdom is going to shake some things up. So God summarizes this in verse 7 when he says to Samuel, human beings consider outward appearances, but God looks at the heart. So what First Samuel 16, 7 points out is that is not that gifts, talents, or strengths are bad, or they're or there things that God can't use i know that they are you know i primarily make a living as a pastor and a lot you know through music and stuff and like my wife my wife for example is a fantastic is fantastic with numbers she was an accountant for many many years she works f uh, do, does financial planning now where she's you know strong i'm weak and and you know it's really funny you know the kids like to sing we all like to sing and Carolyn says, "You know, I wish I could do that too." And I'm like, "I wish I could do what you do." I mean, I look at an Excel spreadsheet and I get an instant migraine. I really yeah. do. But um, we all have our gift, right, rich. We've all got our gifts, as we were discussing earlier. Um, so what First Samuel 16 points out is is that is not that the strengths are bad or gifts are bad, but it points out that the human race inevitably tends to obsess over the external right? It inevitably tends to excess over the fat resume and the, and and appearance. We tend to think that charm and attractiveness and ability that leads to outward accomplishments is all that matters. So if we have these things in obvious, visible ways, then we're blessed. And if we don't have these things in obvious, visible ways, then we don't count. We're insignificant, but we forget about the heart. And what God says over and over and what God is saying perhaps to some of you right now is that in his kingdom, everybody counts. Everyone does. Everyone has something to offer. Everyone's contribution matters, the last born as well as the first born. So if you take the best gifts you have, whatever they are, you don't compare them to anybody else. And if you take a heart full of devotion and lay those gifts and that heart at God's feet, Watch out, because that's kingdom dynamite. God said to Samuel, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And that's what he found in David. Now, the question is, what makes David's heart so appealing to God? What is it about David's heart that makes it a heart after God's own heart? And that's what I want to talk about in our remaining time today. I want to talk about three things that I believe made David's heart great. And I want to invite you to do just a little bit of a heart check as we walk through them and see how perhaps your heart measures up. Again, we have an insert in the bulletin if you want to follow along. So number one is this. I believe that you'll see as we get to know David that David's heart was characterized by wild abandon. Wild abandon. His heart was characterized by a sense of being completely, fully abandoned to God. Total devotion. And this is a real common line from the Psalms associated with David. In Psalm 9, verse 1, David says, I will praise you, O God, with all my heart. He says that repeatedly throughout the Psalms. David had an unguarded passion and heart, and he never held it back. He wasn't calculating and cautious. He was generous, and he was free. One day, God was being challenged by a pagan giant, and everybody is intimidated, but David says, I'll fight Goliath. I'll do it. I picture him a few moments later maybe thinking to himself, what was I thinking? But his heart, his passionate heart, was just given to God with reckless abandon. I want to have a heart like that. I want you to have a heart like that too. I don't want to go to my grave with a heart that was cold and calculating and protected and safe and hard. And I don't want you to either. I long to have a heart like David's and to be part of a fellowship of hearts like that, a fellowship of passionate hearts, passionate people. My prayer for all of us here at SBC is that we will be wildly abandoned to God. The second thing about David's heart was that it was characterized by deep reflection. David's heart was characterized not just by wild abandon, but by deep reflection. And there's a, there's a frequent comment that's made throughout the Psalms by David, and this one in particular is from Psalm 139 at the end where David says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Search me and know my heart. This is a rare combination when you think about just these two—these first two traits, a passionate action on the one hand and a deep reflection on the other. I don't often find those in a lot of people, but that's who David was. Wild abandon deeply reflective i think david's heart was formed in all of those years where he was alone with god uh, the only explanation for a soul that was so deep that it could write the, w- the words like the lord is my shepherd i shall not want he makes me lie down in green pastures he leads me beside quiet waters he restores my soul david spent much of his time alone and waiting when he was a kid he just tended sheep And then there's this amazing day when Samuel comes and anoints him as king. So think about this. Imagine the next day, because you know David doesn't just march into Jerusalem and sit on a throne. I mean, that's it. He doesn't do that. What does he do the next day? He actually goes back to tending sheep. He goes back to the sheep. So just imagine this happening to you. You've just been anointed king of Israel, and there's no one to tell about it but sheep. Hey, sheep, I'm your king. Not much excitement there. All those years he was leading a flock of sheep through the wilderness. They were not wasted years, though. He was learning to be alone with God. He was growing real deep. He was growing real deep. Then there were all those years that he hid from Saul. He lived in caves. He ran from one spot to another. Those were not wasted years either. He was growing deep with God. In solitude and in quiet, God was shaping a great heart, a deep heart. And God wants to do that for you as well, if you'll just give him a chance. So I want to challenge you to go through the Psalms, because you'll learn a lot about David through these Psalms. You'll learn a lot about yourself as well. Uh, many people have learned how to pray through the Psalms. As I mentioned before, they're great devotional literature, um, Martin Luther would pray in the Psalms. He used he used them to help him pray every day. Jesus, when he was on the cross, quoted Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was immersed in the Psalms. Some of the Psalms will teach you how to worship and how to express gratitude and thankfulness. Some of them will allow you to express confusion and disappointment. Some of them will teach you about how to confess and how to repent and how to make things right. But I promise if you will immerse yourself in the prayers of David and in the Psalms, your heart won't be the same. It'll get deeper, just like his. So David had a heart that was characterized by wild abandon, a heart that was characterized by deep reflection. And I think that the other thing that cries out about David's heart is maybe what I want most of all. His heart was characterized right down to the core by stubborn love. Stubborn love love in psalm 78 it says about david that he shepherded the people and he shepherded them shepherded them with integrity of heart the idea here is that it was an undivided heart it was the opposite of fickle okay the opposite of passive he loved people with the loyal heart of a shepherd who just keeps loving the sheep even the the obstinate sheep Think of the people in David's life for a moment. Here's old Saul, once again, promising a promising young king himself and then just increasingly corrupt, tormented by pathological jealousy of David, constantly deceiving him several times he tried to kill him. And what's most amazing, though, is that through it all, David loved him. Twice, twice, David could have killed Saul. But he didn't. And when Saul finally died, David wrote one of the most beautiful poems ever written to lament for him. How the mighty have fallen. Have you heard that phrase? How the mighty have fallen. It comes from scripture. It comes from David. How the mighty have fallen in battle. O daughters of Israel, weep for Saul. How could David find tears for a man like Saul? He knew all about his faults better than anybody. And he knew about his possibilities as well. But he loved him to the end. And then there's Jonathan. Jonathan was Saul's son, who would have been his main, would have been David's main rival to the throne. And you would expect that maybe they would beat each other's throats. I mean, they were kind of set up for it. But they had one of the greatest friendships in history. And when they had to be separated, the Bible says that they wept together. They wept together, the Bible tells us, but David wept the most. And many, many years later, when Saul and Jonathan had had both been gone a long time, David said, Is there anyone left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? And the people brought before him a son of Jonathan, a man named Mephibosheth. Say that ten times fast. Mephibosheth, who was crippled in both feet, and Mephibosheth was scared to death. He bowed before David, expecting the worst, because he could have seen been seen as a rival claimant to the throne and exiled or maybe even killed. And David looks at this powerless disabled person and David says, don't be afraid. I just want to love you. I want to give you back all the land that belonged to your grandfather. I want you to eat at my table with me. I want you to be like my son. Mephibosheth said to David, who is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me. But David wouldn't have any of that talk. He wouldn't. When David loved you, you stayed loved because there was a grace and a love in his heart for the most stubborn sinner. And I want to love like that. And I want you to love like that. You think about your life for a moment, think about your family, your friends maybe even some of the people here in this room with you, think about some of the people who want absolutely nothing to do with God or this whole church thing. If you could get to the end of your life and have them say about you, you know what? Aaron loved me with a stubborn love. (laughs) Court loved me with a stubborn love. Barbara had grace and love in her heart for broken and hurting people. When she loved somebody, they stayed loved. If we could get to the end of our lives and have someone say that about us, pretty cool, I think. I'm going to wrap it up, and I want to ask the band and Corey to come up to the stage, please. David was a man after God's own heart. He is an example to us by being great hearted in God's eyes. David's heart was characterized as being fully abandoned to God. We can be abandoned to God if we're moved to give to him with the passion of David. David's heart can also be seen as one that experienced deep reflection. We can also have a a heart for God that goes deep as well. And David's heart was undivided. He loved people with the loyal heart of a shepherd. And our hearts can be as full as when we become people, when be as full when we become people after God's own heart. Wild abandon, deep reflection, stubborn love. Those are a few quality qualities that, boy, I would love to have people say about me. Would love to have people say about you. So I'm just going to close us up in prayer right now. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the example of David. And I thank you for how you worked in his life. And I think David would be the first to say that he doesn't want us to make much of him today, but to make much of you. And I know that any shred of faithfulness or goodness or love in his life, in, in our lives, is a result of your faithfulness, your goodness, your love. So, Father, each and every day, help us to lean into you. Help us to trust in you, knowing that you are working in us and through us. Your word says in Philippians that you have created a good work and you will be faithful to complete it. So, God, each and every day, help us once again to renew our commitment and our resolve to allowing you to change us from the inside out working in us to, from the inside out. Lord, use us for powerful impact here in this king in, in this community for your glory's sake. In Christ's name. Amen.